you are listening to Open Science Talk, the podcast about, well, open science. Today we are talking about open access and health research. My guest today is Robert Terry. Currently he works for the World Health Organization's special program for research and training in tropical diseases, TDR, as a manager of research policy. His background is from both the Royal Society and the Wellcome Trust. And he is here to talk about how the evolution of open access can contribute to developing a more democratic approach for science. Robert Terry, uh, welcome to Open Science Talk. Thank you. Yeah, it's good to be here. So um, uh, I've invited you here. Um, you, you are currently uh, at the Munin conference and you're going to, to give us a talk from the perspective of uh, the World Health Organization. Why are you involved in open science and open access? Yep. Well, uh, as you said, I work for the World Health Organization. It's a UN agency. It has responsibility for public health right throughout the world. Uh, Our main focus, I think, is within uh, low and middle income countries. But as I said, we are across the world. And I think the importance, um, there's a concept right now of universal health coverage. Everybody should have access to to health care and health uh, um, products. But also, I think it's just as important with the internet that everybody has access to good quality health information, and that should include research output. So where are your organization right now when it comes to open access? So the World Health Organization, WHO, we created an open access policy in 2014. Uh, And what we really wanted to see there was that everything that we produce Um, both within our own journals and with the research that we support, is able to be read by people who have internet access on the day of publication. And I think we're getting there slowly. I mean, uh, all of the research that that my organization under WHO supports, the the TDR, the Tropical Disease Research and Training Group, more than 85% of every paper that we publish is in open access. And open access means you can read it, you can use it and you don't have to ask permission to to reuse it. And I think that's incredibly important as uh, the the form of publication actually changes as we move forward. Uh, do you see any um, disadvantages with having that strict uh, OA policy today? I think one of the restrictions or one of the disadvantages is the way that the market is changing. We, we have got ourselves into a very... Um, dysfunctional market system uh, starting from about the 1960s forwards where we now have a subscription model where the libraries are the ones that pay for the access to the journals uh, but the researchers who are both the producers and the consumers of research have no knowledge of how much that costs and so as a result we had a completely dysfunctional system subscription prices became and I have become very, very large. What open access tries to do is to change that model so that either research dissemination is a cost borne by the research, the cost of research itself. So sometimes that's as, as an article processing charge. So you pay a fee, your paper is published, it, there is editorial services added to it, but it's completely free and available to use once it's published. Alternatively, there are now emerging deals between research funders and publishers where that uh, that, that uh, cost is covered up front and so the, the researcher is removed from that particular issue. The, the key thing here is not just about changing the market, although that's very, very important. I think the really important issue is that since the internet, Research articles are now digital, and digital articles are different from paper-based articles. And what we seem to still have is a bit of a hangover. We have the paper-based article 
put online as a digital form, but hasn't really developed much further. And what I would really love to see is that we can get access to the the types of information that's within a paper, the data, the gene sequence, other types of things. And if we can remove restriction on access so that everything is open access, then we can free up the system and people can start to bring together pieces of research, even if it's in a different language. You may well be able to bring together different chemical structures, gene sequences, things that you wouldn't necessarily read. And this is incredibly important as we move into the digital world where there are literally hundreds of thousands of research papers coming online uh, every week. And there isn't the way of being able to read and can consume them in the way that we used to. So have you tried anything? Of, uh, have you tried this? Yeah, this was certainly something that was started uh, as uh, as gene sequencing came online in the um, in the 1990s and then in the in the 2000s. We were able to bring together better ideas uh, and ways of working. I think one of the examples I can think of is that if we look at say malaria research, if you just synthesize uh, the data that's in the written papers, um, what you end up with is some conflicting research findings with respect to nutrition and malaria outcomes. But if you can get below that and actually bring together all of the different data sets that were in those separate papers, combine those data sets into one data set, you can then start to make much more realistic um, conclusions that yes, nutritional status and malaria and how you treat malaria is extremely interlinked and important. Um, and just by using the narrative, the, the written words uh, alone, you wouldn't have been able to get to that. And that's an example of freeing up the research, both the written narrative and the data, and actually uncovering new information. I think that's, to me, that's what's driving it. The, the marketing system and all of the costs, it's an annoyance that we have to kind of get through, a bit of turbulence, if you like, But I'm, I'm hoping we'll, we'll get beyond that uh, in the next 10 years. So, so where does initiatives such as Plan S uh, come into play here for you guys? Yeah, so I mean, I remember I was at Wellcome Trust in 2003, and I think uh, we wrote the first open access policy. And here we are in Tromso in 2019, and we're still having conferences that are talking pretty much about the same types of things. So my understanding of Plan S, and different people have different definitions, the S stands for shock and surprise. And I think there's probably another S word, but I can't think of it right now. But essentially, it's we need to shake up the current system. We've we've moved way too slowly uh, from uh, our ideas in the, in the mid-2000s to where we are today. We really need to be getting on with this. It's... Uh, um, you know, we are being held back from realizing the potential that the internet has actually allowed us to do. Digital material, digital ways of, of communication uh, should be speeding uh, ideas forward. We're seeing it in the social media sphere, but in the academic sphere, we seem to be very, very slow at moving forward, which is unusual when you're thinking about research and what it's supposed to be about. WHO has uh, has uh, joined uh, the Plan S or, or um, supported it. What does that mean? Well, I think one of the, the key uh, approaches of the World Health Organization right now is, as I said earlier, this this concept of universal health coverage. Everybody has a right to, to, to access healthcare and receive the services so that they can live a healthy and productive life. 
An element of that is they should also have an equal right to access good quality health information. And what we're seeing now today, particularly amongst motivated patient groups, is they want to actually see the research that often their tax dollars has paid for. And so that democratization of science uh, needs to move forward more quickly. And that's really why we we think open access is, is such an issue. If we then take this the perspective from low-income countries, uh, they also have a very restricted access to reading the health information that they need to move forward. Uh, and this is a very real issue. I was working um, in Uganda two, three weeks ago. We were looking at a paper on uh, um, the development of a new vaccine for cholera. I was working not with researchers, but with people who are in the Ministry of Health in Uganda there. We were doing some searching online. We found this paper. They were very interested in reading it. We couldn't access it unless we paid a $35 fee. That wasn't a, re a reality for them. So my question was, so what do you do now when you hit this barrier? What happens to you? And they just said, well, we just don't read it and we make our decisions based on other information. And I think that's completely unacceptable uh, in 2019 and we need to change that. So so what are the barriers here? Uh, you mentioned a couple, uh, but, but uh, what are the main barriers uh, for this to be open? I think... Uh, what the main barrier or the, the thing that I'm, I'm most uh, concerned about is that we've got ourselves into a cycle of, uh, of reward and prestige uh, based on this thing called the impact factor, which was invented in the 1960s only, uh, which is a way of measuring how important a journal is, mainly based on the number of articles it publishes and then the uh, estimation of how many people reads those. What that means is an individual journal, an individual paper appears in a journal and gets a very high mark. That single mark has now been taken out of all proportion and is used by research funders, national bodies and others to rank and rate researchers. And if I may say, I think it's a it's a toxic measure. It's provided way too many perverse uh, incentives and drivers, and it's really um, mucking up the whole research system. It's it's providing a, a very bad uh, way of thinking about things. So there's a couple of things we need to do. One is let's get rid of journals completely. The concept of the journal was born in a paper-based society. We're now online. We don't. We should not be bound by editorial biases and by volume numbers and by those types of things. The internet, in a sense, is unlimited. And so we need to get way beyond that. And in a sense, marking somebody on their excellence just on the day that something has been published is very unusual. It's, it wouldn't happen when you publish a book. It wouldn't happen when you release a song. It wouldn't happen when you release a film. Classic films, classic books, uh, those types of things are, they gain prestige over years, over time, about how they've influenced and had an impact. With, with research, we take this measure once, and in actual fact, before the research has even been dis distributed. So what we need to do is flip that around. We need to start saying everything that is of good quality gets published, and then we add the prestige measures later. And I think, if I may say, this is a role for the learning societies and others where there's a great body of research that's out there available to everybody, but only some of it has a higher value or is shown to have an impact. And that's where we could start to see new types of online journal, if you like, which would aggregate and bring together, these are the top 10 papers in malaria for the last month. And that's the kind of value that we then need to add because, as I said, you know, hundreds of thousands of papers are coming out every year. And what we need is some kind of filtering system 
but it needs to be shifted further down the, the workflow, further down the system, so that people like me, who needs to know what's the latest thing happening in a particular area, I can say, oh, if I read the Royal Society paper on X, they'll give me that overview. And if your paper is in that overview, then you, you have a kind of quality measure there. So there is ways of changing the system. It just seems to be taking so long and so slow. But, but could uh, your organization do have a role in this? I think so. I think uh, we've already, uh, from our perspective, we, we don't look at impact factor when we assess any of the work that we are using for um, either uh, the research that we fund ourselves or the guidelines that WHO, the World Health Organization, puts out. We look at the quality of the paper itself and how it answers the relevance to the question that we have. So already we're, we're, we are not bound by those impact factors. And I think that's the role we can, we can provide, we, we can provide that that sort of leadership i think also um, when we look at uh, our one of our kind of key constituents which is uh, researchers in low resource settings what we need is to kind of improve the access that they have uh, both to reading the information but also they are struggling to get their voice heard in these very high impact journals because there's editorial bias and some of their work may well only be of, of local context. So if we can democratize the system, if we can bring in new publishing platforms, such as the uh, the one by the Faculty of 1000, for example, where the quality of the work is all that matters, it's then published and subsequently openly peer reviewed. And if we can remove the barrier to those costs, um, then I think we, we, we're starting to get into a different kind of environment and hopefully we can achieve some of the, the ambitions that certainly I had in the early 2000s, which was about the digital uh, article and how much impact that can have. Robert Terry, it has been a pleasure. Thank you. Hi, everyone. This podcast is produced by the University Library at UIT, the Arctic University of Norway. Thanks for listening.